welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Tom Huga with the International Transport Forum, and we're going to talk about his work in intelligent transport systems. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Let me read a little bit of your biography for the listener. So, Dr. Tom Fuga joined the OECD International Transport Forum as a policy analyst in 2015, where he is coordinating work on intelligent transport systems, including vehicle automation, shared mobility concepts, and big data in transport. Those are the big issues of the day. Prior to joining the ITF, he worked for the United Nations, uh, UNDESA, as a road and traffic safety expert, following on from earlier roles in management consulting and academia. He holds an MSc and a PhD in transportation planning and engineering, both from the University of Southampton in the UK. He is on the scientific advisory board of the Springer Lecture Notes in Mobility series and is a member of the TRB Committees on Intelligent Transport Systems and on Vehicle Highway Automation. So, Tom, uh, for the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk about your work and what you're currently doing um, at the at the ITF? What's your main area, these three areas of focus? Can you talk a little bit more um, about them uh, for the listeners? Of course. Um, the International Transport Forum is an intergovernmental organization, part of the OECD in Paris. Um, we are somewhat separate from the OECD, having um, a wider membership um, and our mandate is as a think tank to give policy advice to the um, ministers of transport of the 59 member countries of the ITF. In addition to that, we also have what we refer to as the corporate partnership board, so our industry partners. And um, for both, we have a program of work where we have activities such as working groups, roundtables, and um, more flexible um, projects involving desk research and reaching out to um, external experts, having workshops and all of that. Um, but all of that um, in view of giving policy advice to our ministers. We also in, organize our annual ministerial summit where we interact directly with our ministers, always in May in Leipzig in Germany. And my field is intelligent transport um, systems, um, ITS. And in terms of our current projects, that's very much big data in transport, um, vehicle automation, and the kind of systems and business cases enabled by these. So we're doing a lot of work on shared mobility, on automated freight transport. So these are the key topics I'm attempting to, to look at at the moment. Those topics are, you know, the really, you know, I think they're the three three topics um, of our time. I mean, especially um, autonomous uh, vehicle technology. So I think that one of the big questions that I have, and I think, you know, citizens and people in industry have, is how the technology is is going to evolve. So how do you see it um, evolving as an expert in this field over the next five to ten years? And then, you know, the, the second part of my question is, do you see it necessarily being coupled with electrification or do you also see autonomous technology evolving in the conventional, you know, internal combustion engine? 
And then do you see it, you know, from a fleet perspective, do you see it more in the passenger car fleet, heavy duty fleet, uh, or both? And so we'll, we'll start there. And then I've, I've got a follow up question for you. <laughs> so the first question, I think it depends. Um, and in my mind, um, there are two potential scenarios how we can get to vehicle automation. And I think not much in between. It's pretty much black and white, I think. So one vision, and these come up time and time again when you go to conferences, when you talk to experts. So one would be the automotive sector OEM type vision. Um, many of the, or by now, I think all vehicle manufacturers, car manufacturers have started their own work on vehicle automation, have entered into alliances with the tech sector and are certainly to some degree moving towards being also mobility providers. Um, but there still seems to be quite a bit of an element of them having the future vision of vehicle automation that mobility provision so fleets, and we'll come to that in a minute, um, is still a bit of a niche. And for the time being, for decades to come, many of them think um, vehicle automation will not have an effect on the split of the types of vehicles, particularly in terms of ownership you see on the roads now. So there is a vision that vehicle automation will come in very slowly in an evolutionary way and pretty much controlled by the traditional car manufacturers um, and basically as an evolution of the advanced driver assistance ADAS you've already been seeing for a number of years and this full autonomy basically being perhaps the end point of that, but that it will come in in the same way. So as in those assistance technologies that we've seen in in the past where you would see them in the top segment of the market and then with growing sales, um, additional um, technology development, price coming down, and then these kind of technologies and systems trickling down into um, the lower segments of the car market, but that it will happen like that. So um, if you talk to some people, as I said, particularly from the OEM sector, many will tell you 2050, maybe even 2075 is the time when we slowly will get to more than 2.5% of vehicles on the road actually being equipped with this technology. So this wow. is the fairly slow, um, fairly evolutionary scenario. Not necessarily the one I believe in, but plenty of people do. So I think this is the one side. The other side is the belief, and I would tend more towards that, but with that, there's a question still, how fast will that happen? So the second vision would be that vehicle automation, um, sharing platforms, ride-hailing, TMCs, what we already see, all of that, but now with the addition of automated vehicles, um, the convenience that will give you, um, perhaps the added security, it will give you the generally um, better service provision it might give you will enable very clever, very convenient, and compared to private car ownership, reasonably cheap um, mobility. And that that leads to um, a widespread move towards these kind of systems with a large chunk of people um, actually giving up their private cars. And 
what is very important when talking about these future scenarios, um, it often sounds like it will happen like that everywhere in the world. Certainly this kind of scenario, it is likely that there will be an element of that, I guess, in um, the very large cities um, in the developed mm -hmm. world. Um, in other markets and other areas, it might be a little bit difficult to envisage. There's often with new technology, um, the idea of leapfrogging, and yes, that might be possible, but I think we might see that in dense urban areas in certain parts of the world, but that might happen. So um, with that, we would see what is always called a paradigm shift. So we might see a completely different provision of mobility. And in that case, it would have a very disruptive um, effect. There will be a lot of change with that. In the first one, not really. And the question, which one of those would happen? And um, for your question about electrification, I cannot really see um, vehicle automation on a large scale happening with um, internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, I find that unlikely with the only exception, and even that I think might only be happening in a transition period, but a transition period might still be quite long. So you do see technology providers trying to um, position themselves in the market with aftermarket kits. So saying to fleet operators, buses, for example, particularly those smaller ones um, that might be considering a move to automated vehicles, but are scared off by the high costs of completely replacing their whole fleet. So there are technology providers out there who are saying, look, you can keep your vehicle. You just need to buy a kit, which is a lot cheaper than a new vehicle. And with that, when you install that, you have basically an automated vehicle or a vehicle with a certain element of automation. So I can see that perhaps happening, but not as a future scenario, as something some um, providers might be using as a shortcut to get there. And the question about fleets, well, that goes absolutely back to the two scenarios uh, I outlined at the start in the OEM um, evolutionary one. As I said, it's pretty much defined by not having much effect on enabling a move from private ownership to fleets. In the second one, absolutely, it will be perhaps almost only fleets and only a small um, amount of private ownerships. But as I said, in large, dense cities, in rural areas, it will start to get much more difficult in terms of a business model and the funding for all of that. You know, I think it's so interesting. Um, I don't know that I've ever really directly heard or at least understood that um, the OEMs kind of collectively view this technology as so far out. I mean, when, you know, these this technology is talked about in the media and of course, you know, that is that is what what that is. But when it's when it's talked about in the media, it tends tends to be much closer. I mean, more in the um, in the 2030. Um, time frame, and I guess one of the reasons why I personally doubt that 2050, 2075 is if you look at what the nature of cities will be, you know, in that 2030 to even let, let's say 2050 time frame, you know, 70 per percent of us will be living, as you very well know, will be living in large, dense um, urban areas, and so. Something will have to happen, I think, to assure 
you know, any, any type of mobility. And of course, you know, yes, there's a lot happening in public transport and improving public transport and expanding public transport. But, you know, people also want other ways of getting around. And I don't see past that, I guess, from an intuitive or, or anecdotal or whatever qualitative standpoint, I don't see how you, with, with cities being that large, how you get, you know, and, and people wanting some kind of um, mobility that might not necessarily mean public, pub, public transport, if you will, or traditional public transport. I don't see how you move, move people around, but by, um, you know, kind of limiting vehicles and, and sort of making them, um, you know, autonomous. In other words, like the nature of, of where we're going with, with cities um, don't you think that will help sort of drive the development of the technology much more quickly than maybe what the OEMs are saying? Because there's going to be a necessity for it. Am I am I wrong about that? No, absolutely. I mean, I already hinted at that. Um, I also believe a lot more in the other scenario. It's just it's certainly one that is out there and needs to be taken seriously. But maybe to clarify, so numbers like 2050, 2075. The point is not that people think the technology will only be ready by then, but it's the assumption that it will not lead to any kind of paradigm shift. It will mm. remain the number of privately owned vehicles out there will remain the same, and the fleet turnover rate we um, witnessed over the last decades will pretty much um, stay the same. And with those kind of calculations, um, vehicles that first or technology that only comes in, in the top segment and slowly trickles down again based on um, previous experience, all those processes, because of that, we will only by 2050 or 2075 come to a point when more than a certain percentage of the vehicles actually out on the road are equipped with that technology. So that just mm-hmm. to clarify, but no, I fully agree. Um, and here again, our mandate of giving advice to um, our Minister of Transport is very important. So if we look at urban areas, at traffic in urban areas and the continuation of urbanization you spoke about, then mm-hmm. obviously something needs to be done there. And um, for me to say it, in as simple terms as possible, and always try to do that when I go to conferences. Uh, not necessarily everybody agrees with that, but my vision certainly is the big potential we have with vehicle automation is that that together with other technology, sharing platforms, big data analytics, and all of that allows us to come up with a socially acceptable transport system with higher vehicle occupancy rates, i.e. less vehicle on the roads. I mean, the problem we have in cities with congestion is there are too many vehicles on the road. Um, That is Uh very easy to understand. And the problem is the low vehicle occupancy rates. Usually the the number quoted is 1.2. In commuter traffic, it's 1.2 people per car. And depending on where in the world you are, sometimes even pretty large cars. So that is the problem. And um, Public transport, shared um, modes of public transport, buses, metros. There are cities where it's quite accepted. There are cities where there's almost no alternative. But wherever mm-hmm. there is an alternative, I think um, 
the past has shown people prefer um, driving in their own vehicle. So the idea is vehicle automation plus other technologies might lead to something similar to public transport, but that feels more like owning a vehicle, gives you all the comfort of that, and is still at least slightly cheaper than owning a vehicle. So these kind of technologies could lead to a larger number of people sharing one vehicle, sharing in terms of ownership, then we don't have these metal boxes um, cluttering up cities, but also sharing in terms of more people per vehicle, which means then there would be less vehicle on the road. And the ITF has done a number of um, modeling, transport modeling exercises about this for a number of cities. And what we found there was that if you assume a, a widespread modal shift from what we see nowadays to these kind of systems, and that is a big if. So this transition mm -hmm. period needs to be managed properly. And this is, again, where our advice to ministers comes in. So um, transition period needs to be managed properly. But if that is successful and if there is a large modal shift, then our studies have shown that because of the sharing, and the automation is not really important, it's not because of the automation, but the automation might enable a system that is more acceptable um, and lower the costs. But due to um, more sharing of vehicles, we might be able to get rid of 90, maybe even 95% of the vehicles on the road um, right now. So that would mm -hmm. um, get rid of congestion. It would free up huge spaces in cities to be used for something else to make cities more livable. That analysis, um, what you're just talking about, seems to comport with um, another analysis that I've seen recently from the University of California at Davis, um, where they've looked at, uh, for a few markets, um, including um, the, the United States, you know, what would happen um, if we combined um, autonomy um, electrification and, and ride sharing and, you know, used, you know, the, those three concepts um, uh, together. And uh, one of the, I mean, there were many, many interesting, interesting findings that one of the key findings is what brings it all together is the ride sharing um, aspect of it. That's, that's um, you know, the, 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 the real key in terms of mitigating climate change, air pollution, reducing congestion, you know, making people's qualities of life uh, better. So my question to you is, how do you see ride sharing evolving um, over the next five to 10 years? And are there markets where you see, I mean, ride sharing is already beginning to, to take off in some markets, but do you see ride sharing taking off and really becoming more established in some markets rather than others? first, I guess. Again, it depends. Um, I think, and we discussed this before, um, that vehicle automation might have um, an impact on pushing this forward. And as discussed, we don't really know how and when um, and in what way vehicle automation will come in. Um, but certainly, I think there are clear trends. I mean, as I said, many, or by now probably all vehicle manufacturers um, starting their own concept, entering in alliances, um, merging with other right. companies, investing in other companies. So certainly there is a lot happening. Um, I think it's becoming um, more and more acceptable. Um, 
but the question is still um, how fast this uptake will be. But um, certainly, it's generating more and more interest. I think it's success, but also a little bit its operating um, concept will relate to the level or the kind of public transport provision that is already in place. So I think in parts of the world where public transport perhaps is less developed, I can mm. see this kind of system being a great way forward. Mm. In other parts of the world, it actually can have negative effects. And again, transition period and policy advice, um, these are the kind of things that should be avoided. So you can see um, right-hailing, which you can just about um, call um, shared mobility, but single occupancy, you can see these kind of systems attracting people away from shared mode. So if you have a right-hailing system that is reasonably cheap, you might see a modal shift away from buses and metros. So that probably um, would not be a good idea. For these kind of markets, it's probably better to use the shared mobility systems for um, what is always talked about in public transport, the first mile, last mile. So getting to mm -hmm. um, a public transport interchange or from the last one in your journey, getting to whatever your destination is. Or perhaps door-to-door, -door, but only at um, times late at night where it might be unsafe with other modes or the frequency is so low that it's not very convenient. So um, I think it has to be a slightly nuanced discussion. I think the big key in, in all of this development of um, uh, and, and, and establishment of technologies is the consumer. Um, so do you see consumers, you know, ex you know, ultimately accepting um, and adopting um, this technology? And I guess this is where the governments come in as well, because, you know, for example, in, in the U.S., I mean, we have uh, we have cities with really uh, very good public transport systems that people do not use. And so, you know, um, you know, the, the question is, is like, okay, how do you get these people to change their behavior? How do you get these people to, you know, to, to get out of their, of their cars? Um, and, um, you know, how do you see? So there's the question of will consumers accept the technology? And then there's also the question of, you know, how do we incentivize consumers to to make the behavior shift? And does government need to to get more involved um, in, in doing that? I think it's important to look at both at the roles of industry, of particularly the tech industry and governments as well. And probably there has to be an element of the of cooperation between the two, but um, obviously, if we look at a development that is very much driven by the, the private sector, so where we have companies um, like Uber, like Lyft, um, coming up with innovative solutions and pushing them into the market, um, we might be able to say, and as I said before, I really believe that um, the combination of um, electrification of automation, big data analytics, um, all of that being able to generate a business model for shared mobility that is certainly a lot more acceptable than any kind of public transport we see now. So um, 
I really think this will all enable a product, a service that is good enough that um, people will adopt it. But perhaps it might not be might not be enough. Um, but at the same time, and we haven't really talked about that yet, there are also negative scenarios. So um, if we would just say, we leave it to industry to come up with a good system, where well, they might, but they might also come up with some systems that um, would be very useful to consumers, um, but that in terms of transport policy would be quite disastrous. So we could think of um, a company putting out a service there with automated vehicles that actually don't carry humans that um, um, run errands for humans that pick up the dry cleaning that pick up um, groceries and all of that so we talked earlier about the vehicle <laughs> where do I sign up exactly so we talked yeah. earlier about the 1.2 um, person per vehicle vehicle occupancy rate so we are hoping that this kind of technology we're talking about here will um, increase this number, but we can also see services that decrease that number, that we're getting closer to zero, and then we will end up with a lot more vehicles, even more congestion, and um, a breakdown of the system, and certainly from a decision-maker's point of view, from policymakers' um, point of view, a pretty disastrous development. So actually not helping with mobility at all but making things worse so the role of government then absolutely has to be um to steer this development away from the horror scenario more towards positive shared mobility kind of scenario and as usual it's carrots and sticks um, that can be used for that so we had a round table um, a while ago where we were actually discussing exactly that um shared mobility in cities enabled by um, vehicle automation and where we are talking about these positive and negative scenarios. And it certainly was felt by the people um, attending this roundtable that left to its own devices, probably there will be at least an element of these horror scenarios. So certainly there will have to be a role for government, um, perhaps taxing um vehicle use or um, single occupancy vehicle use. Um, there are already many schemes out there for a long time, um, road user charging, congestion charging. Mm -hmm. So probably an element like that. It's not something that will make politicians very popular to talk about, but we certainly felt that an element of that has to be in the discussion going forward. Yeah, it is very interesting. I don't know um, if if it occurs in Europe. I'm not sure to to what extent you know governments are having that discussion with the people, but certainly certainly not over here. You know, I really don't see it much here in the U.S. where policymakers are just you know really honest with the public and say, look, you know, this is where traffic is headed. You know, you are spending, you know, there's there's various studies out there about the time that people spend in traffic. I mean, if you look at Los Angeles, it's it's uh, in terms of your time spent in traffic. I think it is the top city in the world. And there's a number of U.S. cities that are on uh, that are in that category. You know, and I don't think policymakers are honest, but look, we really need to do something about this. You're spending too much of your life on the road you know, waiting around uh, in traffic. It's not good for your life. It's not good for your family life. You know, here's where, where cities uh, are headed. You know, we, we still have air pollution issues here. We have the congestion issues. And of course, you know, 
Right now, we don't talk about it at the federal level, but we do have a climate change issue as well. Um, there's a little denial about that, but that issue is existent. And so, you know, you don't see really policymakers being really honest about, look, we really need to do something. We want to make your life better. We need to kind of figure this out. We have these issues that we need to solve. This is, you know, how, what we think the, the pathway forward is. And there really isn't that kind of dialogue happening, but especially around, you know, the usage of the car. But I think that we are going to have to have that discussion. I mean, it's, it's, it's within forums like the OECD and the ITF and other various bodies of the, of the UN. You know, they're having discussions at that level, but not, I think, as much between government and civil society. And I think we are coming to a time here in the next few years where we're going to have to start having that conversation and the hard choices are probably going to have to start getting made. Do you do you agree with that, or do you see that? Yeah, I think too. I, I certainly think in Europe um, there is more of a discussion on that. I mean, there are many parts of Europe um, where a lot of the mobility is done by cycling and all of that. Scandinavia, yeah, Netherlands, right. and all of that. Where certainly for a long time there has been, on a local and little bit national level, um, a very good discussion, I think, on sustainable mobility. But having said that, um, I certainly agree that or like to talk about the different levels you mentioned. So that also doesn't make it easier from the policy um, point of view. So if you're looking at it on a very high level of sustainable development goals and all of that, then certainly that is national level discussing on an international in an international forum. But this then goes down to um, national governments, states, and if we're talking about mobility and the effects of mobility, then it's very much on a city level as well. So I think that is a bit of a problem, that it's different elements are discussed in different fora and on different levels. But I think mm. much of the work um, that needs to be done in the context of what we've been talking about here probably be increasingly has to be done on city level and all these shared mobility system it all often sounds like it's a one size fits all for everywhere in the world but i think probably these kind of systems to succeed need to be much more tailor-made um, on a city level where we need much more leadership champions on a city level and as i said in europe with many sustainable mobility topics such as cycling, cycling infrastructure, better pedestrian facilities, um, better facilities for vulnerable road users. A lot of work has been done, but I certainly see less in terms of shared mobility, although there's huge discussion going on about it. But on a proper policy level, I think there is not that much yet. It's still a reasonably early topic, but then bringing vehicle automation into the mix. Again, so the part of ensuring a vehicle is safe and is allowed to be on the road type approval that is done by the United Nations, UNECE in Geneva on a global basis. Um, and then we, if we look at national policy and even cities here and there, I think we are still at a point where these kind of shuttles you see a lot, um, automated shuttles are a great photo opportunity for politicians, but I don't think they are thinking enough yet about how to actually use these and what problems to solve with it. It seems very much technology for technology's sake. We can actually do this now. Let's put it out there and 
worry what to worry about what to do with it later. So I think there needs to be much more of a discussion, probably on city level, on what actually are the problems, what are we trying to solve, and then come up with a number of ways to address it. And if vehicle automation is one of them, then that's great. Then look at that in more detail. So that is actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you about is, do you see, because you just talked about about this um, about this issue with, uh, with the cities, what more do governments, especially at the city level, what more do they need to do to sort of prepare for this, uh, these uh, technology developments, you know, um, automation, um, electrification, uh, so on and so forth? You've talked about, first, they need to figure out what their problem is, <laughs> what problem are they trying to solve, and then to, you know, to adapt uh, the technologies or adopt the technologies accordingly, adapt and adopt the technologies accordingly. Um, but are there other things that they need to be doing and thinking about as well? Sure. I think on city level, um, the citizens are very um, important. So if, and I said before, that probably is a good idea if we don't just leave it to industry to come up with clever business models and then just allow them to push them into the market. But if shared mobility can come in in a kind of controlled way, then there needs to be more oversight from the cities and they need to be tailored at the needs on a slightly higher level of um, mobility policy, but they need to be accepted by the citizens. So in France, over the last month, there were a series of large citizens debate um, events where they tried to present different kind of scenarios, different kind of futures, and get feedback from citizens how they would feel about a system like that being available and all of that. So I think that is a very important element to talk to citizens about them, about these kind of technologies, and to go further than what we see now, where you have a shuttle like that in a pedestrian area on a weekend and people can um, look at them and maybe take a take a quick ride. And that is interesting too, but I think there has to be a debate on it. And ideally, um, they should be involved in the design of the system. There needs to be a buy-in from them. And the second element I think we have, um, haven't mentioned yet that is very important is, uh, is research. So um, we need to look at other ride-sharing, ride-hailing, other kind of systems out there and have a very close look how have they affected uh, mobility behavior. So many of these systems on first glance could be quite, could look quite beneficial, but we need to look exactly at the modal shift. So if the shared system gets people out of single occupancy cars, that's great. But if we see a modal shift of people who are able to walk um, to a system like that, then from a health perspective, that's not a good idea. From a mobility policy point of view, that is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. If we get people to use a shuttle for six people instead of a bus or a metro on a high-demand corridor, then this is not really a good idea. And I think getting to these conclusions is not trivial. So. I think um, it's absolutely essential to have research into mobility behavior and how it is affected by any of these new kind of mobility services we are seeing. As part of the sort of investigation, research, and maybe potential policy response, do you see 
because we're already seeing governments, especially especially at the the city level and also national governments in Europe, uh, beginning to take a stand on you know internal combustion engine vehicles in general, particularly diesel uh, vehicles. Um, you have governments, a number in Europe now now wanting to are aiming to phase out or ban you know, these, these vehicles, do you see governments, um, especially at the city level, you know, beginning to take more and more a stand on, you know, these kinds of vehicles, especially as these other technologies are beginning to emerge? Or do you think they'll just, you know, continue to use other measures like what we're talking about, these low emission zones or congestion pricing or removing parking or other sorts of strategies that would serve to, you know, maybe maybe limit, you know, these vehicles and, and also, you know, personal driving? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've, we've been seeing for a while already different kind of policies that limit or control access of different vehicle types, either physical access or a pricing mechanism that regulates um, access of different vehicle types, usually based on emission. I do not see that being applied yet on vehicle occupancy rates, apart from in the US. Obviously, for a while, there have been these specific lanes, for example. I don't think that mm-hmm. exists in Europe, so I haven't seen anything on that. And again, on vehicle automation, also not, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is an element of that. And uh, I mentioned earlier um, that certainly road pricing in the widest sense might well be one of the instruments being used to steer developments away from the horror scenario I mentioned earlier to the slightly more positive um, shared mobility one. So certainly these kind of instruments, I think, definitely in the near-term future, in the transition periods, will be the ones we are seeing, yes. Maybe in slightly more creative ways, but yeah, absolutely. The last question I have for you is on cybersecurity, because you um, have written and studied and spoken a lot about this issue and the implications for connected autonomous vehicles. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about your work in this area and how you see the implications here and also how you see governments responding or at least how ITF is advising government in this area? It's very much based on um, a recent piece of work, or actually still ongoing piece of work, again, for our industry partners, our corporate partnership board, CPB, where we had um, a one and a half day um, discussion here at the OECD on very specifically safety and security um, of automated vehicles, but also based on um, earlier, more general work on um, big data in transport and what we refer to as data driven transport policy or transport governance. And there we looked specifically at road safety of automated vehicles, especially in the context of safe systems, um, vision zero for road safety. And we are looking at um, cybersecurity as well. In earlier work, we also looked at privacy, which I think is a um, plays a big role here as well. So if we are talking about vehicle automation, um, enabling shared mobility um, concepts, then somebody, um, the person running the platform, running the services, whoever, somebody or um, a number of organizations will be collecting a very large amount of data. And much of it is geolocalized data. So data that 
refers to specific individuals and their movements in time. So this is very privacy relevant. It's part of the business model, but it's also very privacy relevant. So there is the question, how can, particularly in a system where you have different players interacting, how can this private data safeguard it? And um, we looked at um, a number of different principles that are already in place right now, like privacy by design or the safe answers um, systems from MIT. So there are ways of safeguarding it. The question is, can we get people involved to actually do that, particularly, as I said, with a number of different players and maybe changing um, setups. So there's the privacy element and then the cybersecurity element. Obviously, there's been a lot in the media about hacking of vehicles and um, mm-hmm. both if it's fleets as well as individual vehicles, then um, this obviously has a huge road safety relevance, but it could even include larger threats um, like terrorism. So um, our advice, um, policy advice there certainly is to address cybersecurity from the very first um, development stages and come up with very specific um, mechanisms to safeguard it, both for um, cybersecurity of vehicles, of infrastructure, as well as enabling um, data privacy, but also something I haven't mentioned, um, commercial data. So um, Mm. much of the vehicle performance data, again, is commercial data, and there might be instances where this will have to be shared with regulators, for example, and sometimes there's a certain element of distrust of the public sector in terms of safe handling of data. So, um, again, there need to be specific mechanisms in place to safeguard this. Yeah, I mean, especially right now, the the sensitivity with what we're seeing with uh, what's happening with, with Facebook and uh, Cambridge Analytica, I mean, it's, uh, it, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, serious breach. So I think that will be a, a continued area of concern and, and focus. But I think it's good that that has happened because the focus is now on it. And so perhaps that there'll be a good response or a good, uh, you know, good result that comes, <laughs> comes out of all of that that has wider implications beyond just you know, social media platforms, but into this area as well, no? Um, Absolutely. And I think this is not just important um, from a consumer or government point of view, but as we we are seeing with Facebook, it can also have um, large impacts on the company involved with the whole campaign of deleting Facebook and all of that. So we might see a fairly successful shared mobility operator that actually does something for the greater good and then an incident like that happening, or even worse, perhaps um, a road safety-related element happening, and that's pushing back development or technology development, and particularly uptake of the technology and consumer acceptance by years or even decades. So, um, absolutely, I think it's very important to keep keep those kind of events in mind. All right. Uh, We'll end it there. That's the show. Thank you so much for listening. And I want to thank Tom so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. So please do us a favor before you go. 
head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and hopefully also benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping us out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on future fuels and vehicles issues, sign up for my free newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. Thanks again. 